You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. You know, life is not made up of a moment where we kind of really define our life and our children. It's a series of moments. And as a parent, it's a series of moments as well. Maybe you can't quite put your finger on that moment. Well, that's because it's not necessarily one. It's many. It's your life that you live out in front of your kids. Uh, We are about to wrap up Ephesians. We only have one week left, and it's next week. And, And if you didn't miss a week over the last couple of months, then you walked with us from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and you're, we're going to go all the way to Ephesians. Well, we're in the last chapter now, but we're going to go all the way to the last verse. And today it's the second to, to last sermon on it. And, and uh, the resurrection of Christ is the most powerful event in history. It, it redirected the lives of everyone who heard it. And the letters that make up the New Testament give us what the early church saw as encouragement, they were the very first generation of followers of Christ. Think about that for a minute. We're reading letters from like ground zero of Christianity. Like these are people that have, that that within their lifetime, their grandparents or their parents knew the apostles or, or knew someone who knew the apostles and this was all, they had never heard of Jesus. I mean, we, Jesus you know, 2,000 years ago, it has encapsulated our society from names. You know, our names are, half of our names are defined by Christian names. Uh, cultural uh, significance, uh, movies, television, art, paintings, ideas, concepts, morality, values. I mean, the Bible and Scripture, the, the New Testament Christ has shaped everything. Imagine 2,000 years ago, one generation, first within, you know, within 50, 40 years of Christ, trying to live out this brand new story of what it means to know the Creator through this person, Jesus Christ, who is God. Ephesians is one of those letters. Written by a delegate of Jesus Christ, an apostle, He planted the church, and he challenged them how to stand, how to walk, how to run in Christ. And and it's not just a, a, well, the Bible. This is is generation one about what it means to live for Jesus in a culture that had no understanding. I mean, we have like this, this loosely based ground of Christian values in our nation, you know, and we, we try to hold on to those and, and promote those and encourage those and, and resist change from that. But imagine hearing of Christ in a culture that had, did not even doesn't have Jesus as the center, but never even heard of him. He doesn't even exist in the mind of the culture. This is them. This is this people. Last week, how Jesus affects our love life and our marriage. Today, two more areas where the rubber meets the road. These are the three areas that... That if you can't get it right here, then maybe you need to go back to square one and figure out who you are in Christ. Today we're talking about family and our work. Before we jump into six, I need to give you a few things to consider about the family. Family matters. A word of caution. And this is important because this is like, you know, some people are like, man, my family's in trouble, so I can't wait for today. One sermon's not going to fix your family. A series on family uh, problems is not going to fix your family. And probably a counseling uh, is not going to fix your family uh, because it's got to be something that God can only do, you know, through us and, and sometimes uh, in spite of us, right? This is what I want you to know. Number one is that godly parenting does not guarantee godly kids. This is, this is a, a, a hard one to swallow for Christian parents. Uh, there is a myth that if we do everything right, our kids will follow Jesus, But that's not always true. There is no magic formula for producing kids that love Jesus and are following after after the ways of Christ. We quote this verse, Proverbs 22, 6, as some kind of golden ticket to, to, uh, to raising godly kids. It says this, we've all heard of baby dedications and, and uh, you know, we, we, when our kids are wandering from the faith, we go back to this verse and we're like, man, I'm going to hang on to this verse because, you know, this is what the Bible says and this is my promise. Listen to what it says. You've heard it. Proverbs 22, 6 says, start children off on the way they should go. That means give them direction. And when they are old, that word old, by the way, means bearded. It means when they hit puberty, that's the teenage years. You know, when they become an adult, when they become a grown 
person, right, when they are older, when they are mature, when they become a grown adult, they will not turn from it. Okay, now, first of all, by the way, this doesn't say they will return to it. It says they will not turn from it. See, a lot of times we hang on this verse because it means, hey, I raised them in church, and that means this verse says they're going to come back one day. That's not what it says. It says they're not leaving at all. They're not going to deny it, walk away, or if you put them in the right direction, then, then they're not going to stray from it. So first of all, you might be hanging on to a promise that doesn't mean what you think. Second, this is a proverb, not a promise. Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon writes, In this letter to my son, I have gathered these wise sayings, and I want to gift them to you. A proverb is not a promise. A proverb is a statement about life and how it generally works. Wise sayings, that if you do this, there is a good likelihood that this will happen, but not a guarantee. So when you read the Proverbs, it's important that you know that Proverbs are not necessarily promises. They are wise sayings, statements of wisdom that tell us how life generally works. So sometimes you might think, well, I raised my, my child in, in church, and, and man, I, man, I prayed with them every week, but now they don't want anything to do with God. The Bible is a lie. This promise isn't true. Well, it's a proverb. It's generally the likelihood, but it's not a guarantee. Genesis 1 through 3 gives us examples. Adam and Eve, all right, they, they were perfect parents. Yeah, they make mistakes, but they were good. They were really good parents, all right? They knew God. I mean, they knew God. They talked to God. Man, they imparted that to their kids. Their kids were worshiping God, bringing sacrifice to the Lord as young people, Right? And, and think about this, Cain and Abel, the, they had more than Cain and Abel. They had a whole bunch of kids, all right? But Cain and Abel wasn't raised in a public school system, right? They, they weren't like messed up by cultural, you know, gender biases. And they, they, they didn't have like, like politics to, to kind of cloud their, their, their direction of, of, of ideas, right? Cain and Abel wasn't, wasn't raised in an abusive home, right? The, neither one of his parents, their parents were alcoholics or they, they weren't screamers and fighters. I mean, Adam and Eve were pretty good parents, but yet what happened? One of their own kids murdered the other. They started off solid, perfect environment. Here's another one. What great, great example, Samson in the book of Judges, his parents were stellar. They prayed they honored God. They dedicated Sam, uh, Samson to the Lord at a young age. They raised him to know God and to follow God. But yet Samson spent his whole life running from God and doing the opposite of everything his parents and God said. And then I think of someone like Samuel. Samuel's probably one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He's one of the last judges. He, he brought us King David, the greatest king of all time. Yet Samuel, who loved and served God, if you read his story, his kids were wild kids. So much that when they were looking for a king, they said, we want somebody but not you, Samuel, because your kids are rebellious and running from God, and we don't want them to be the next generation of royalty. So find us somebody. And that's when Samuel went off and found Saul and David. But Samuel was a good parent, but yet his kids were crazy. David is another example in 2 Samuel. Yeah, David made some mistakes when he was younger, before his kids were born. But as you follow, after his kids were born, he strived to, to serve God, to follow God, listen to God. Man, he, he, he had this vision of the temple. God spoke to him. All of Samuel's big blowout mistakes were before his kids were born. But yet, he had all these kids, and, and some of them became murderers and killers. And he had one of his own sons rape his own sister. I mean, his house was crazy. And David followed God with such intensity, but his kids didn't follow God in the same manner. Then you think of like Ezekiel 18 says that we will each have to answer for our own actions. As, as a child, I won't have to answer to my parents. And as, a, and as a parent, I won't have to answer to my children. We'll all have to stand before God as individuals. So it's important that we know the Bible doesn't guarantee that if you're a godly parent, 
you'll have godly kids. There is a lot of unfounded pride when we look at our kids who are like good kids, quote unquote. And, and there's a lot of unfounded guilt when we look at our kids and we're like, man, I must have broke them. I must have messed up. Um, the truth is, if we follow God's word, we're more likely to have kids that follow Jesus. But ultimately, Jesus has to step in. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who's got to move on a heart. And you can't make that happen. You can set the example. You can have teachable moments. You can model it out. But ultimately, they're going to have to choose Jesus for themselves, which is kind of leads us to the next one is that a good start is no guarantee of a happy ending. Some people think, well, my, things are going great for me. You know, my, my kids, uh, they, we have Bible studies at home. And, you know, we read the Bible together. We pray every night. Um, you know, they're in kids' church. You know, my kids, they gave their life to Jesus at 7, and they got baptized. And, man, they went to youth camp, and, they, man, God touched them so much, they got baptized again. You know, it's like, it's like they're double dipping into God's glory. So they're like, they are set, man. Everything is good, man. And, and, and they pray, and, and uh, you know, it, things. we're good. We're good, Ted. We're good. Listen, parents, we must always be growing and striving to disciple our family, we're never good, all right? We're never set because I see it all the time. I was a youth pastor for, uh, uh, I worked in youth ministry for 20 years before I started Living Way, and I was a youth pastor for 10 years before I became a senior pastor, and to ask all these kids, man, on fire for Jesus, and I'm friends with them on Facebook, and they don't know Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They don't want Jesus. We're still friends. Because I was a, a, a mentor in their life, and we, we still love each other. But they're not falling after Jesus, though they d- jumped through all the hoops as a team. They went to camp. You know, they got dunked, and they walked an aisle. They jumped up and down. They raised their hands. They were excited. They, woo, they screamed Jesus, right? But yet now they're not living for Christ. And, and I, can't, I can't make them love Jesus. And, man, what was going, man, they were good. It was good. But it may not have been legit. And, and so we don't know that. In time, we see if someone's truly a follower of Christ or not. It's important to know that a good start is no guarantee of a happy ending because what someone might have is not a relationship, but even as a young person, you can have religion. You can have religion of your, of your church or of your, of your parents or of your environment and not truly have a relationship with Christ. Um, the enemy is persistent and works to attack our family every day. So if you feel like at some point that you're set and you just kind of like, you know, feel like you're going to go into cruise control with your family, then, then stop. <laughs> because the enemy is not on cruise control with you. He's out to attack you and destroy your kids and to disrupt your family and your marriage. Which is the third thing I want you to realize as we talk about this is our goal with our kids is not to hold on but to guide through. Not to hold on, but to guide through. To guide them through the stages of life and to launch them out. All right, to launch them out. I've got a bow and arrow up here, and I've used a bow and arrow before, and I'm not going to shoot it this time because actually I shot it across the stage one time. I'm like, I don't want to put a hole in our walls, and and I'm not going to scare anybody. But uh, I want to reference this here in just a moment, how God says in Psalm 127, it's not in your notes, write it down anywhere on your page. Psalm 127, a little tiny psalm, it says that that, um, unless the Lord build a house, we labor in vain. And then it goes on to say that, that we must rejoice in, in uh, the children that God has given us and, and embrace them. And that blessed is those who have a quiver full. That means like a lot of them. A quiver is like, you know, like the thing that holds the arrow. And then it says that our children are like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. So there's this idea that, that you young people and, and you parents, you know, you're the warrior. Our kids are the arrows. And there comes a point when we got to let go. So my, my point with my kids, and, and every good parent knows this, we're not trying to hold on to you, but we're trying to let you go. We're trying to launch you, but we've got to guide you to that point where you're ready to be let go. See, a lot of young people, they think they're ready when they're not ready. And they want to be let go when they shouldn't be let go of yet. I mean, let me put it this way. All right, um, here, let me do this. Okay. I got this bone arrow here. So we got these arrows. I'm going to pick one without a tip in case it goes off. Um, <laughs> so we got this arrow. And the idea is that 
It's like, first of all, we, we get a baby. <laughs> baby. We get a baby. Right? And then at some point, you know, you realize this is a teen and this is a weapon. <laughs> right? It's like these teens can hurt. Right? So our goal is to now prepare them to get out of the house. I think God shapes in us this kind of almost a friction in our family so that we're ready to let go. You know, so like we're ready to, like more willing to launch them out. So God kind of puts that independence in a young person and, and puts that ready for them to move on in an adult type of thing. But here's what happens. What happens a lot of times is parents, when the when a teenager or a young adult gets resistant, is they just kind of, you know what, you're on your own, man. Right? And they just let them go. And you might be a, have a teen in the house, but you don't want any conflict. You don't want any trouble. So you just let them do their thing, just to avoid arguing. And, and you're not launching them. You're actually setting them up for failure. You're, you're dropping the responsibility of what God's given you to do. So then we have this, this other tension, and that is, I'm not going to put it in the, in the bow, but there's this, there's this tension that as we pull back, that arrow, you know what happens? It gets more tense. <laughs> it gets more tense. It gets, it gets more uncomfortable. The friction gets stronger and stronger, right? You're like, and at some point you're like, man, I, I don't know if I can handle this young person anymore. I don't know if I can, I don't want to deal with this anymore, you know? So you get this, all right, you're out of here, yeah? And you, 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 you pre-launch them. They're just not ready, they're just not ready. So what happens is we have this, you know, we don't like the tension, so we let go. We don't launch them uh, properly. But here's what happens. When we are slowly embracing that tension, there comes a part where we get it, right? There's that moment where you're like, all right. And then you get to shape them and you let go. Here's the challenge, though. Young adults, teens, we're not trying to hold on to you. We're trying to launch you. We're trying to guide you. And if we let go too soon, we're setting you up for failure. All right? So, parent, your, your goal is to not let them go too soon, but to not hold on to them too long. Right? And that, that balance is what we're going to look at today in Ephesians. And I, I really like the passage today. And uh, I think it's going to speak to a lot of people today about family and work, um, do you think, well, you know what, this is great, Ted, cause, but I have good kids. You know what good kids really means? It means easy kids. You know, if someone says, man, oh, this baby, such a good baby. You know what that means? It means they sleep a lot. Oh, they slept all night. What a good baby. Yeah, it means it was easy for you. Sometimes we define our kids as good because they don't cause us trouble. You know, that we're not called into the office or there's not a fight or they don't do drugs. And we're like, oh, whew, man, I got good kids. Well, that just means easy. And let me tell you something. There is nothing easy about being a parent. And the more you put the tension on and the more you shape them, the more you'll be ready to let them go. But there's going to be more and more tension when you do it right. All right. Some of the difficult traits of a child, by the way, can be done, can, can basically, if you say, man, this kid's strong-willed, doesn't know when to stop talking, you know, always pushes back, you know, 10 years later, they're a leader, right? Because that's, those are like great traits as an adult in leadership, you know? And so sometimes when we think a kid's a good kid, it might become a passive adult who, who is succumbs to all kinds of temptations and troubles. So we can't define our kids based upon how easy they are, but based upon who God shaped them to be, uh, shaped them to be and how you are at launching them. So with that foundation, let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and may live long on the earth. And you fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Family values. We got some family matters. Now family values. God's game plan for family. Paul gives us three principles uh, from God right here. Here's the first one. Children obey. Children obey. A lot of times we think, oh, that means the kid venture kids. 
Because that's children. They need to obey their parents. And, you know, I've asked this to our young adults, and they were like, I don't know if they just did, didn't want to answer or they were avoiding the, the, the answer altogether. But I posted on our Zone Facebook, does a young adult have to obey their parents? And only one person who, who is really outspoken is the only person that wanted to comment on it. Uh, everybody else is like, I don't want to talk about it. Because you know? that's a real tense moment right now. I mean, at what point does someone stop? Obeying their parents. Because this is written to adults and to children. So let's talk about this for a moment. What does it mean? This is children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What's that word child mean? It doesn't mean age, it means dependency. Okay? The word there is technom, which means children of dependence or dependence, right? Food. Support, shelter, school, financial support. A small child to anyone dependent upon their parents for financial support. The Bible says as long as you're a dependent child, obey your parents. Hashtag rule of the roof. All right? That's a very biblical principle. As long as you are under my roof, you are under my rules. And if I'm paying the bills, you follow my rules. I don't like that. Well, that's a biblical principle, bro. You know, that, that, is, that is how the Bible has called us. See, remember, there's gonna, you're going to be out of the house much longer than you are in the house. All right? So the Bible even says if you don't like it, well, then move out. That's kind of the, the Bible says for this reason, a man shall leave the dependency and the, re, and the authority of their mother and father, and one of those reasons, he says, is when you get married, you know, you shift responsibility, you, you shift allegiance, and, and you, you become a sense of a, of a new sense of authority in your own household. Obeying is not an age-based, but a dependence-based uh, situation. You get the privileges of adulthood when you accept the responsibilities of adulthood. I don't like where this is going, <laughs> some of our young adults, but it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an age marker. A jump in age does not guarantee a jump in stage. A lot of people think, well, I'm 18. I, I, I don't have to do what you say anymore. Well, it's not to sound like, like old school, but as long as you're under my roof, you do. But when you, move, when you launch out of here, man, you can pick whatever time you want to stay up. You can pick whatever time you need to be in. You can park your car wherever you want, and you can go to church wherever you want. But right now, until I launch you, until I, remember, the, the, as you pull back, it gets tense. It does. It gets tense because there's resistance. There's resistance in that relationship. But if you let go too soon, you won't launch them with success in the way that they should be gone, uh, released. So age is a transition towards independence. It is not independence. The Bible even suggests if you don't like it, move out. So listen, young adults, until then, enjoy the benefits of being at home. Enjoy the benefit of having food when you walk into your house. Because if you become a young adult and you move out, you realize you ain't got food in your fridge that much. When I moved out of my house, my toilet paper was the Dallas Morning News for many months. And I'm not kidding about that. Because it was paper towels and napkins for McDonald's. It was like, because we didn't, have, and our food was basically a bag of potatoes <laughs> and mustard and bread and cheese. It was like, that was our groceries. You know, and I could scrounge together and go get some beans at the gas station. I know this sounds like silly, but you know, when you're a young adult and you move out, you know, I moved out when I was 18 and it was hard, right? And, and, and I had that freedom to be my own person, but it also came with a lot of responsibilities. So until then, enjoy the benefits. Because one day you'll be out, and you'll be able to do what you want. But right now, as long as you're under the house, you're under the house rules, follow the rules. And this, again, this is dependency. Like, what, what if someone's off in college? Should they, well, do your parents pay for your college? Do they give you money? Is the majority of your life dependent upon your parents? Then yes, you're a dependent, you obey. All right? Again, you get the privileges of adulthood when you accept the responsibilities of adulthood. This is a biblical principle. By the way, we're called God's technon. 
God's children, which means we are always to be dependent on him and we are to obey him. Obedience at home reflects our obedience with God. Parenting is a lab that teaches children how to submit to God. The key to this is the third part, which we're going to look at, is parents don't provoke your children to anger. More on that in a minute. So when we come to to this idea of dependency, what happens when you're an independent? Like some of you guys are grown-ups now. You're not dependent on your parents. Um, do you need to obey your parents? Well, the, Paul speaks to that, and he says this. He says, he says Ephesians 6, 2, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and live long on the earth. This is a quoting of Exodus Chapter 20 in Deuteronomy 5, it's the fifth commandment of the Ten Ten Commandments, which, by the way, the fifth commandment says, honor your mother and your father. It doesn't say obey your mother and your father. It says honor your mother and father, which I'm going to define that in a minute. What does it mean to honor? This was directed to independent adults. Those that were out of the house had already left their mother and father, become married or living on their own. And regardless of your status in life, dependency level, you are to always do this. And the sons and daughters, here's the principle, honor your parents. That means we owe, we owe our parents respect and honor all the time. We owe them respect. Now, if you didn't have good parents... It doesn't matter. Maybe I didn't have a, a dad that was there. And, and you know what? I honored him. I respected him. I supported him. He was not there for me growing up. But I always called him. I always reached out to him. I was always there to help him. Because that's what the Bible, that's what honors God. That's what God has asked me. He says, honor your father and mother that it may be well with you. This is what God wants for you. This is what God will honor and respect. We owe our parents this. What does it mean to honor? It means, what does it mean? It means we owe them respect. It means we owe them support. Now, there are some hyper-controlling parents that need to understand this. This does not mean that adult, independent children must obey their parents. It doesn't mean that. If you're dependent on your parents, you obey them and you honor them. If you are independent of your parents, you honor them. You respect and you support them. The word honor in the Bible um, gives this idea that you are to show them this level of honor and respect and support. What does that mean? Respect means to esteem, to listen, to weigh their words, that their words are heavy for you. That means they mean a lot. You respect, you listen to their words. It doesn't mean you always have to obey them, but you weigh them heavy. And it means that you recognize what they have to say. You recognize their heart and the, the time they spent and the effort and the energy and the travail and the challenges, good and bad, that they put into your life. And you appreciate them and you, respect, you don't disrespect them. You, you don't talk badly about them. You don't trash talk them. You don't yell at them. You, you don't cut them off. You respect them. And the word honor there is also means to support. What does that mean? That means help with their needs. That means you look after them and be there when possible. And if they are in, in need of help, like for support, like life, you are there for them. Sometimes as you get older, you know the challenges of having adult parents move into your home. Some of you guys have been there. Some of you guys are not there yet. And, and that is part you know, if, if you and your family work out another arrangement and you're all in agreement, then you can honor and support and respect them if, the, if you put them into a facility or if you have them live at your house. But you are called as an adult, independent of your parents, to always respect them and to honor them and to support them. The third commandment, it would have been controversial in their day. It's this, Ephesians 6, 4, and you fathers... Don't provoke your children to wrath. That means don't exasperate them. Don't infuriate them. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That, here's, so there's a word for the dependents. Here's a word for the independents. Now here's a word to the parents. Parents, don't exasperate, but bring them up in the Lord. See, as you seek to break their will, don't break their spirit. 
See, that's kind of what happens all the time. You know, my kid's rebellious. I'm going to break that spirit. No, don't break their spirit. You break their will. But sometimes it's such a fine line that we can crush the heart of our kids to where they don't want anything to do with you. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with the church. They don't want to do anything with the family. And you crush their spirit so much, they just can't wait to get out of the house. He says, don't exasperate. Don't frustrate your kids. Colossians 3.21 says, fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Parent, listen, you're not perfect. Sometimes our pride pushes us over the edge. And sometimes our anger gets the best of us and we don't always treat our kids right. I don't know about you. I have two daughters. They're older now. There's not as much conflict as they get older. But when they were little, more than once, I went a little too far maybe. I didn't like, I never beat my kids or anything. But, you know, I mean, I maybe got a little too angry. You know, maybe got a little too verbal, right? Or maybe put them in a timeout that was unnecessary. Or, and, 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 you know, over the years I'm looking back, I'm like, I'm not perfect. But thank God, you know, he forgives and, and that my kids love me enough. And that if I will go and be transparent, be honest and apologize. I just had to apologize to one of my daughters um, two nights ago. I'm going to be honest with you. There's a little secret here. I'm going to tell this service only because she's probably going to be in second service. Is uh, We were getting ready for a garage sale, and one of the girls was going through a bunch of stuff under her bed, and, and she was just ready to get rid of it. And I'm like, I was like, you can't get rid of that. You know, like I gave you that, you know. And I was like really putting it on pretty thick, and she was, you could just see, shh. She was like, and she was saying, you're making me feel bad. You're, you're, you, you know, she got, and I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, you need to deal with this. You're not getting rid of this. You need to figure, and, and so, it, it, and I just, I was being lighthearted about it somewhat, and, but she was like totally crushed that I was just guilting her into keeping something. And so I, I, I went in like three times that night and apologized. I'm like, I gave her hugs because I, I don't want to crush her. I don't want to you know, break her. I don't want to discourage her. And, and, you know, we're in this journey together. We're not perfect. You know, things uh, that can fluster and exasperate our kids, uh, that can bring discouragement. Parent, this is what you need to not do, and that is uh, double standards. Things that, that fluster our kids, a hypocrisy, broken promises. Uh, when you expect perfection from your kids, you're going to fluster them. Uh, discipline without affection, that's a big one. A lot of parents will, will bring down the hammer, but they don't bring in the love. You know, they just, it's like you must have uh, uh, discipline with physical love, affection, uh, living through them, uh, your desires in life, you know? Like, I never got to do this, so you're going to do this. Well, maybe they don't want to do that, right? These are things that fluster them. Forcing your interests and habits on them, and even forcing God on them, can be very discouraging. So children want an authentic parent, not a perfect parent. Be weak, be vulnerable, own up to your mistakes, never saying sorry, exasperate your kids. If you, as a child, and as an adult parent, can think, when was the last time your parents ever apologized to you about anything? Some of you are like, well, my dad never apologized to me. And that's probably one of the big issues you have with your dad. He never admitted his mistakes. If we push them away, they'll run away emotionally. So Paul then shifts to another area. And I don't know if I'm going to get through this. Let me just kind of hit it really hard and fast. So uh, he transitions into this. He says this. Bond servants, or some translations say slaves, be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh, which with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart. Now, he uses the word slavery, and I want to clarify the Bible has never, ever, 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 ever condoned slavery. In fact, writing to the exact same church, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, he says that slavery is equal, to, that the slave trade is equal to murder. The Bible never condones it, never supports it, never encourages it. But you need to understand that when we think of slavery, it's not how they thought of slavery. Four out of every ten Roman citizens were a bondservant or slave in the Roman Empire. Four out of ten. Almost half of the population was in servitude or in slavery to somebody else. So he's writing in the context of their life. That's two million people in the Roman Empire that were slaves. Some by choice. That means uh, some of the great leaders of the Roman Empire were former slaves. Luke, 
the writer of the gospel of Luke was believed to be a slave before because he was a physician. In order to be a physician or a blacksmith or any kind of tradesperson, you had to become a servitude or a bond servant or a slave to someone for an extended amount of years to learn a trade and give your life to that person, and then you released. So a lot of these people were there for education, for trade, for land. They would work as a slave and then receive a portion of their land for a loan, sometimes by force. You were, if you went into debt, you know, with MasterCard today, you just get a notice. Maybe you, you paid off in pieces or maybe you filed bankruptcy. There was no bankruptcy in the Roman Empire. If you were delinquent on a bill, they would make you a slave and you would work it until you paid for it. Or maybe it was an area that was conquered and you would be a slave for a season until you could become a citizen. So usually it lasted a set number of years. So the closest thing when you read slavery in the Bible, it's not supporting slave trade. In fact, like I said, Timothy calls that comparable to murder. He's talking about the work life, your daily work life. So let's talk about work for just a few minutes before we go. I'm going to hit this quick, so try to keep up. I'm going to skip through some verses, okay, Luke? So undercover boss, three things Christians have to change at work. He says this, bond servants, that's employees, be obedient to those who are your masters, that's your bosses, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, everybody say, as to Christ, not with eye services, man pleasers, as bond servants of Christ, say bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord. I must say, as to the Lord. And not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Here's the first thing you need to know about a work. By the way, if you're a young adult and you want to be independent, you need to embrace these three things so that you can get out of the house, all right? So here's the first one is this. We have to change who we work for. We have a new boss, all right? The Bible makes it clear. When you go to work... You're not working for the man. You're working for the man, right? You're working for Jesus Christ. You're working for he's the boss. He's, he's the Lord. Man, the TV show Undercover Boss, you ever watch that show? It's kind of fun. Uh, you have the, the boss of a company coming in, and he disguises himself, and he's working, and he's serving, and he's trying to learn what they're learning. But what he's doing is he's watching people work. And those that work and do the very best at the end, there's a big reveal. Hey, I'm the owner of the company, and you impress me. I'm going to give you an education. I'm going to put you to college. I'm going to give you a raise. I'm going to give you a position. They, see, when they were working for something higher, when their standard was, was something beyond just being you know, in front of people, then all of a sudden they got the, a blessing or a change of direction, which is the second thing I want you to write this out, is that we have to change how we work. We have to change how we work. We got, we got a, 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 a new assignment. We got a different assignment. We got a, a new boss and we have a different assignment. Colossians 3.17 says, uh, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus giving thanks to God, our Father, through him. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. That's working for the Lord. You got a new boss. And then he says in, in Ephesians 6.5, he says, do it in obedience, sincerity of heart, not as I service, as men pleasers, but as God pleasers, doing goodwill to others, even when people aren't looking, even when people aren't watching. Since we are working for God, we work our best doing our best all the time. You know, I've talked to people, and you know what their goal at work is? Is to get away with doing as little as possible. I've actually had people tell me that that's their goal, to do as little as possible during the day and still look like I'm being busy. <laughs> Fire. Get fired. <laughs> you know, you'll learn what it means to get busy. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all. This includes your job. This is your schoolwork. Man, I embraced this when I was 17 years old, 16, 17. I'm like, you know what? This homework, man, I'm going to do, do this 
my best for the Lord. Some of my early jobs, I worked in a kitchen. I was a waiter. I was a cook. Uh, I worked in food service for many years. Uh, I was a, a, a dietitian aide. I worked in the in food service industry for a long time, multiple restaurants. And, and I also worked at a dry cleaners where I had to be alone all day by myself in a dry cleaners. And, man, you, I could have put my feet up and watched TV all day. Didn't matter. And my, one of my major jobs after uh, I got into college was uh, I had a job where I worked for a company where I drove all around town by myself. And I could have been doing anything and making numbers up and because and, I had to visit different stores all over the Metroplex. And then I had another job where I ran a warehouse. Sounds like a big job. I was a manager. But I was the only one there. <laughs> so it was, it was like I managed me, right? All these things shaped me. You know what I do most of the week? I'm by myself a lot, you know? And it shaped me to be a disciplined person and to be someone who's disciplined and, and knowing that I work differently because I work for someone different, okay? There's a picture of this in, in uh, the scriptures where Jesus, just the night, the night before he was to be uh, put to the cross, he got his disciples together, and they were always asking, God, uh, Jesus, we want to be, you know, sitting at the right hand of you, at the table, at the last, at the great dinner table in heaven. And Jesus says, you want to be great? Be the last. You want to be a leader? Be a servant, and you know what he did to model it? He's the king of kings, the Lord of gods, the lords. He spoke into creation everything that is. He's the sustainer of life. But yet he gets down on his knees, kicks off their sandals, and washes their nasty, dirty, scabby little feet. And he says, you want to be, you want a title? You want to be a leader? You want a title? Pick up a towel. Because we have a different assignment. That's what leadership is. It's learning to serve. So here's the third thing. Not only do we have a, a new boss, not only do we have a different assignment, but we have a better reward. It says we have to change the way we work. You're not just punching a time, clock, uh, time card or a clock. It's bigger. We work for eternity. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since we know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. That reward comes from working for your bosses as if you're working for the Lord. You will have an eternal reward for how you work in this life at your job. It is Christ, he says, you are serving. So not only do we have a new boss, not only do we have a different assignment, but we have a better Reward. You may not get that raise you want. You may not get the company car or that opportunity, but you will be rewarded as to how you work with your boss right now. Work fulfills God's purpose in creation. It is an act of worship. The word work in Genesis, you know, when he created Adam before the fall, he says, all right, Adam, I got an assignment for you. Here's creation. Here's the garden. Tend to it. Care for it. The word there, he says, he says, get out there and work it. The word there means to develop. Think about it. God gave Adam a responsibility to be a gardener who develops, not a ranger who guards. Work is not punishment. It's part of God's design. Twelve times in Genesis, God makes something, and then he makes Adam, and then he says, here, Adam, you make something. I'm giving you the tools. Worship me with your work. So what do you do if you don't have a job that's fulfilling? We'll do it faithfully as an act of worship, knowing that it helps someone, and that's some satisfaction you can have. But even more, consider that there might be a distinction between your job and your calling. Now, sometimes your job is just God's provision for your calling. Maybe it's in a church or a ministry outside of job, and that job becomes a tool of God's provision for the ministry that God has you. I was talking to someone about this the other day. You know, 95% of churches in the United States are under 100 people. That's, that's a lot. 95%. 90% of churches in America are under 75 people. You know what that means? That means 95% of all churches have pastors that work outside of the church. They're called bivocational pastors. That means they have a job and then they still have to prep and prepare and get ready and disciple and counsel people and show up on Sunday and serve. 
they understand that that job is not their calling, that pastoral role that God has given them is their calling, but that job is a tool to meet their ministry calling. Maybe that is for you. Maybe you're never going to be in full-time ministry, but God has called us all to be in ministry, and that job is a tool for that ministry. So I want to wrap it up with this. Priority principles. What Paul does in chapters 5 and 6, he says this. He says, actually, in all of Ephesians, he lays out very clearly what our priorities in life should be. Number one, he says this. Our walk with God has got to be number one. You need to care for it. You need to nurture it. You need to feed it. That's your number one priority. If you are not getting something out of church, you need to get back to where you are with God. If you're not getting something out of Bible study with your small group, then you need to figure out where you are with God. And it's not a small group. It's not a church. It's not your wife. It's not your husband who's the fault. It's not your kids or your job. It's you needing to figure out where you need to be with God. So your number one priority is you need to work on your relationship with God. You need to be reading God's word. You need to be learning how to pray, which is what we're going to talk about next week. You need to feed yourself. Number two, your number two priority is your marriage. The number one earthly relationship above all others, even above your kids, is your wife or your husband. Sometimes kids are born and all of a sudden it's like, Marriage goes to the side because the kids are most important. You know, the greatest gift you can give to your kids is a healthy marriage. Because remember, the goal is to launch them. Remember, the goal is to let them go. To, the tension is there, but once we let them go, that is success when they are moving in a direction that's towards God's will for their life. And our goal is not to hold on, but to release and to guide and to let them go. And so there's going to be a day when your kids are going to be out of the house. Are you still going to want to be married to that person? Are they still going to be your best friend? Are you going to still want to go out to dinner and hang out or even sleep in the same bed together? Or you just become roommates? What begins with understanding that the number one relationship in your life is, in this world, is your spouse. The third is your children, your family. Children follow the spouse. Children follow the spouse in priority in your relationships. I've had people ask me this, what about if I get remarried and I have kids from a previous marriage? Shouldn't they still be my priority and then this marriage be second? No, because they are going to be launched out of your life and you want that relationship to be a lifelong relationship. And if you put your kids over your marriage, you will devastate the spouse and you could cause a tremendous amount of pain and heartache and resentment in that marriage. When you get married, you become one. Your kids, by the way, this is something to think about. You and your kids are not meant to be one. They're meant to be one with somebody else. Boom, man, that's not my notes. Somebody get me a pen. That's good. Some might wonder, where does church fit in? Oh, and the, the fourth responsibility or priority is work. Not understanding this can ruin a family. I see it all the time. Many homes are torn apart by work schedules. They, they stop coming to church. They're barely at home. They have work goals. Workplace temptations begin to move in, and all of a sudden they start compromising their values because they're with this lady at work or this guy at work more than that. You know, you'll spend most of your life at work. So when you spend time with your family, it needs to be always, even when you're at work, the priority, your spiritual life, your, your romance life, your love life, your family life, your kids life, it's all got to take priority over work. It's all, I've never, I, I've met with a lot of people who are in the last few weeks of their life and I've, I've even held the hand of people as they've turned off machines and they've died as I've held their hand and, and laid hands on them. I've never met a person that said, I wish I had worked more. Never. You know what they've always said? I wish I had one more day with my wife. I wish I had one more kiss, one more hug. I wish I could get down on my knees and play one more time with my grandkids or my kids. It's not, man, I wish I could just work overtime one more time. I wish I could have just made a little bit more and drove a better car. It's not the goal. But what do we do? We spend our whole life investing into work only to find out that when we retire, we ain't got nobody. We're alone. Some might wonder, where does church fit in? It doesn't fit. It envelops. The church represents the kingdom of God, and it's never meant to be in a priority list. 
Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. That's not a priority list first. That is a kind of a, a, a glasses first. Everything you see is first through the lens of the kingdom of God. So when you think of how does church fit into this, it covers it all. The church, we are given to you as a gift to help you maneuver through all of these. We're not ever meant to be an afterthought. It's not, okay, if I can squeeze in a Sunday morning. That's not God's plan for you. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but you're thinking right now, this would have been good for somebody that I know. This would have been good today. This is what we're here for. The number one earthly responsibility is passing the spiritual torch of the kingdom. Matthew 28, 19, it says, make disciples, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded. Worship is not our priority. Prayer is not our priority. These are important and valuable tools so that we might fulfill our priority, passing the torch. Because eventually, eventually we will let go of our kids, and eventually they will be launched into this world, and eventually we will have to let them go. But you know what my number one goal in life is? is not that my kids learn how to be good citizens, and not that they become well-educated and smart, and not that they have a great, you know, GPA. And not that they are like are great at sports. And it's not that they become a political position that I agree with. And it's not that they become good citizens and just nice, kind people. My plan and my purpose and my mission as a parent is to pass the torch of Jesus as best I can onto them. And then let them go. And then let them go. And you know what my goal as a, as, a, as a parent personally is? My goal as a parent is that my, my kids want to be my friend. They're going to be adult friends in my life much longer than they're going to be children that have to obey me. You know? And so when that time comes, I hope that we like having holidays together and vacations together and trips together and want to hang out together and go shopping together and that we're friends. Nobody else except a parent I'm going to get all weepy here, is that nobody else like a parent gets to shape your own friendship like your children. I'm shaping my best friends outside of my wife, right? My wife's my best friend. But I'm, I'm shaping, and, and then if we have a good relationship, then their spouse, when they get married, man, they're going to be some of my best friends too. I'm excited about that. But the tension is there. Don't let go too soon. And don't resist too much because the day's coming and you're going to go. All right? Let's pray. God, thank you. God, that you're so good to us and you love us. And, and Lord, I pray that, God, that we would just trust you in what we're doing and own up to our failures and mistakes. Maybe there's a parent here that has messed up and, or a young adult that is, has uh, messed up too, Lord. And, and maybe they're in that transition season of, of still obeying but wanting to be independent, Lord. And I pray that you would just help us all to be grace-filled and forgiving and authentic and transparent with each other, uh, Lord, because, Lord, we need each other. God, I need my family. I just love them so much, Father. I just want them to be a part of my life forever. God, I know that's the heart of every parent here, Lord. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.